the scripture that Matt will be preaching from this morning is 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received us from how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Meg, Merrill, Bill, Simon, Meredith, Brian, Joseph. Uh, those of you that um, watch regularly know that we have a really dedicated tech team. Among other things, they, I have a backup mic this week in case either I make a typical Matt Blazer type error with the mic or if something technological happens. I'm going to say 77, 78% of the time my fault. Um, and I say that because if you're friends with those people, uh, I would appreciate it if maybe after church you'd send them an encouraging text. We listen when you guys tell us what's wrong with the service and we work on fixing it, um, but I think they would appreciate some encouragement. So there you go. We're utilizing Thessalonians um, to look at our vision as a church because these categories of worship and community and faithful presence are implicit in Paul's understanding of the life of a follower of Christ and what a church looks like in its town and neighborhood. And Paul begins by encouraging uh, the Thessalonians very directly. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk 
and to please God, just as you are doing that, do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, good job, keep it up. I was trying to think of a time that um, my high school coaches would come in at halftime and say, good job, keep it up. I mean, that was never their message. And I had the privilege of coaching in, in Webster Groves for three years, maybe four, three, as an assistant coach to the freshman team. And I remember one time that we got to say, good job, keep it up. And I remember because it was this weird story. So freshman ball, we're mostly interested in helping them figure out whether they want to keep playing. Very competitive, very well-coached high school team. Best half-court defense I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I was well-coached in high school. No offense, coach, if you're watching. He's just a little more aggressive in Webster Groves. Um, so we're mostly interested in these guys getting better. We want to win games, but our interest is in them getting better. We're playing this team, and I recognize one of the assistant coaches. He and I went to college together. Their players, players are wearing t-shirts over their jerseys, so we don't know who their starters are. And we always wanted our guys to match up with their guys for starting at the beginning, right? Match the point guard up with the point guard, shooting guard with the shooting guard, you know. So we wanted to tell them who they could match up with. And I go over and we're chatting a little bit about his season, about our season, and I say, hey, can, I, uh, can you just tell me the positions of your guys so that my guys know who they can match up with? You know, we just want our guys to get better. I don't think it would give us an advantage. And he just kind of looks at me and I go, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the whole scouting report on my team if you'll do this. And he doesn't say anything. So I give him the scouting report. I'm like, our point guard is kind of the guy you need to guard. He can shoot, handle the ball well. Our shooting guard's a good player, but I wouldn't worry too much about him, you know? Um, and I go down the list, right? You gotta box out our power forward. He's incredibly aggressive on the glass. He listens to this whole thing, and then he goes, how do you know we don't play zone? And he starts to walk away, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then he turns around and he goes, by the way, have you guys lost any this year? And I said, yeah, we've lost twice. What about you? And he goes, we haven't lost. And then he just walks off. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? Like, with 30 seconds left in the first quarter, uh, one of their players hit a free throw, which made the score Webster Groves 20, them 1. In between the first and the second quarter, I got to say to our guys, keep it up, you're doing a great job. That's the only example I can think of in coaching of a time that got to just say, you're doing great. Keep it up. And it felt really good, too, after the coach had been such a punk. I pulled our point guard aside before the first quarter, and I told him the story, and he goes, coach, coach, I got you. And he did. Paul's saying something very similarly to the Thessalonians, especially as it pertains to how they treated one another. He's saying, you guys are doing a great job of caring for one another. Remember, he visited with them probably for about two months with Silas and with Timothy. Then he leaves. He wants to go back. He's convinced that he shouldn't go back, so he sends Timothy. He's just received the report from Timothy. Now he's writing them a letter. This is probably all within the span of five or six months, uh, beginning at the time that Paul met them. And he's saying, I continue to hear that you're loving one another well. And this pleases God. When we flourish in spiritual community, God is pleased. And if you're like me, you immediately think, is he displeased then when we're not flourishing in spiritual community, when we're either not showing up to spiritual community or we're not an honest actor within spiritual community? And Paul doesn't talk about that. He decides in this moment to simply encourage them, to exhort them to continue to care for one another. And I think it's one of our honors 
And honor for the Christian is to show up and worship God and love him with our emotions and with our mind and soul and strength and to participate in spiritual community. And that's what uh, he's encouraging them in. When he says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I believe he's referring to their affection for one another. Um, this is really in line with the Christian life um, and the way that especially in the works of Paul, it's, it's uh, written about. One of the most formational books that I read, um, I think in college or just after college, 70-page book by a Chinese uh, pastor named Watchman Nee, and it's about the book of Ephesians, and it's called Sit, Walk, Stand, um, and I'd encourage you to read it if you have time. Uh, I really find, I don't know about you, I've mentioned this before, I find short books really cathartic, you know? I feel like I've been really productive. Joseph, will you pull up that slide? Um, and what Watchman Nee does, he walks through the book of Ephesians, and he, he points out in chapter 2 that Jesus is seated with the Father. So because of his work, we're received as the Father's. Then we learn to walk with him. In chapter 4, Paul says, walk worthy of the gospel. Then you get to chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, and we're ready and able and equipped to stand against the evil one. In Thessalonians, Paul's talking more about... Um, their love for one another, and then he's going to talk about an area of potential growth for them, or at least an area of where he can clarify for them. But it's the same gospel. One thing I didn't talk about last week that I meant to was in, in 1 Thessalonians 3 is the only mention of the good news in the entire New Testament that doesn't refer to the once and for all time work of Christ. Literally every time, euangelion, Good news is mentioned in the New Testament. It's referring to the work of Christ, except in 1 Thessalonians 3. Anyway, but then Paul starts talking about morality. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in the, in the scriptures is an umbrella term that invites us to something that many of us don't believe exists. Sexual wholeness and freedom to be who we are in Christ and who we are in Christ as a man or as a woman, do you believe that's available to you? Actual life and freedom and wholeness. Our culture's so all over the map with this, you know? Um, there's so much anxiety about it. There's so much permissiveness. There's also so much cynicism, all at the same time coming from all sorts of different directions. I'm a much bigger fan of film than I am of TV, and um, I think at least 90% or above uh, scenes of intimacy actually are there to depict the loneliness of the character, not um, intimacy with one another. And I like to, when I describe the gospel, when I preach on it, I attempt to explain, because this is biblical, that when... Gospel, uh, gospel and biblical writers talk about sin and avoiding temptation. They're showing us that what we flee from leads us into something else. Paul says this repeatedly in these verses, in verses 3 through 8, which is where he talks about uh, the section of sanctification that is our sexuality. That you abstain from sexual morality into what? Sanctification that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And that's the thing I'm not sure you believe. 
And yet in Christ, it's available to you. Um, and I have seen people freed who didn't believe there was freedom. If I could, I don't have a magic wand, I don't believe in magic, but if I could wave my magic wand, one of the most profound things I want to convince you of as a preacher, because the, the text and the truth of it, is that there's freedom in this life from impurity into holiness. Not holiness as in without sin, but where the thought comes in and just immediately goes out. And when it goes out, it's, I know that's not who I am. I'm not a creature of impurity or immorality or lust. I'm a creature of wholeness because of Jesus who has healed me and calls me his own. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Do you see that? So the warning is to avoid impurity. Why? So that we receive holiness. Uh, An author that I'm a big fan of titled a book, and then I think he changed the title, which he really likes to do. But his book on this is called The Utter Relief of Holiness. And for a variety of reasons, I think the most uh, intense version of that, mostly I'm looking at Paul in Corinthians, teaching us that our our sexuality... um, both wholeness is available in terms of sexuality, but also when we choose impurity, when we give in to temptation, it harms us even more than other kinds of sins. Um, Paul gives nine references in this section to God. And is he talking about sexuality? Or is he talking about God? They're linked. Our worship of God is displayed in our life through the willingness and ability, through the Holy Spirit's power, to avoid the temptations of misused sexuality and to move into sexual wholeness and especially the honoring of one's spouse which is just as um, relevant to a single person. If you're not married, then your sexuality is only to glorify God and is not for another. And if you are married, this is an incredible opportunity to give over to the Lord your misplaced over-desires and receive his holiness, and thereby honor the person that he's called you into relationship with. In many respects, with respect to the, this being a vision series, um, those of us that are married, our spouse is our first neighbor. The Christian life is love God and love neighbor. This is the first opportunity. For those of us that are married, our, our spouse is the first person that we get to be faithfully present to in the world. And it's a profound part of how people look at us and either decide Christianity is what makes this person distinct or I don't see it in their relationship with their spouse. One of, one of the uh, most humbling stories I ever heard was from a professor of Covenant Seminary named Jerem Bars, and a car salesman was moved to ask him questions about his worldview because of the way that Jerem treated his wife when they were shopping for cars. This has never happened to me because I need to grow in honoring my wife. And the growth is available. All of the implications of verses 3 through 8 are that I can grow up in maturity. That's what sanctification is. I can increasingly learn to honor and love my wife. Paul ends this section very strong language. 
Remember, he mentions God nine times in his encouragement that we can actually avoid impurity and receive the freedom and wholeness of Christ. He closes this way, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. As I was looking at 1 Thessalonians this week and considering it, and if you've listened to the other sermons, you know that the Thessalonian converts were mostly um, Gentile converts, mostly Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking converts. When New Testament writers write to Gentile converts, they end up talking with them more about sex and sexuality because the culture was not um, moral the way the Bible would describe morals with respect to sex. Whereas when biblical authors write to religious converts, people that came from Judaism into Christianity, they need to talk to them about being generous with what they have, remembering to show up and worship, because that's really important, and they're not as good at loving one another. So 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, 1st and 2nd Peter, Hebrews, are, uh, James, are letters written more directly to Jewish converts who were struggling with other things. And I think we're a mix. I don't know <laughs> your history with respect to verses 3 through 8. I don't know how generous or not that you are. I don't know how much you participate in the spiritual family of the church. But I was struck by that. So in the Corinthians, mostly Gentile converts, and Thessalonians, mostly Gentile converts, so they needed to learn different things. All of us came from somewhere and need for our faith to be grown up. Remember, Paul says that he is going to um, supply what is lacking in their faith in chapter 3, verse 10. And that doesn't mean they're not saved. That means there's maturity available to them that they're not yet experiencing. This is what's so hopeful and life-giving about the gospel. Whether you are 9 or 95, you, by the Holy Spirit's power, can become a better will, will, actually not can, will become a better lover of God and neighbor, which will give peace to your heart and encouragement to your neighbor. This is a big part of the reason that Christianity grew so quickly in the Roman Empire in the first and second and third centuries until it became uh, legal to be a Christian and then illegal to not be a Christian, at which point Christianity was wildly harmed. But in the first and second and third centuries, uh, there were moral movements. What Paul is saying would not have surprised a Roman uh, person who was philosophical. But what impressed the Romans was this isn't philosophy. This is a way rooted in historical fact and has uh, morals that ne necessarily accompany it. So for a Roman, they would argue based upon experience and based upon a sense of philosophy that you should actually treat your wife with honor and respect. But for a Christian, you get to learn through the Holy Spirit's power to honor and respect your spouse because of God and because of reason, but in, in that order. And this impressed the Romans intellectually and evidentially. Paul says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Don't miss the encouragement there. Who gives us the Holy Spirit who will never leave us or forsake us. We follow God into growth because we know him. In verses 9 through 12, Paul reminds them that they're good at brotherly love. He reminds them that their support of one another is encouraging not just the Christians there, 
but the Christians around the area. And then he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. This is Paul reminding them to continue in brotherly love, as he mentioned in verses 1 and 2, but also he's encouraging them to continue to be distinct followers of God. So this statement um, would separate them from other factions of philosophical belief in the Roman Empire, specifically the Epicureans. Maybe you learned about them in high school. They're the ones that wanted to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I know that that's... um, overly brief summary of Epicurean thought, but when Paul writes this, he's encouraging them in how to do friendship with one another and not overburden one another um, with their needs. He wrestles through this a little more extensively in Galatians chapter 6 when he says each one, uh, we carry one another's burdens, but each one must carry their own load. We have to figure that out as a church. Our deacons have done an excellent job of learning with the resources that we have, financial and otherwise, how much help can we give people that are struggling? Because we don't want to be a burden to one another. We don't want to always be burdensome. In the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul's point is love is friendship that is not always burdensome. And this is a way that we proclaim Christ to a watching world. It may seem insignificant to you when you make a meal and bring it to someone's home. This is one of the most significant ways that we evangelize. All of the parts of our vision are part of how people will come to know Christ through the Holy Spirit's pursuit of them. Your authentic worship and commitment to it, especially at home, is part of how the world learns about the one true God. Your care for one another and willingness to learn one another's stories and pray for one another and give tangible care is part of how we tell the world about Jesus Christ. And our direct efforts of faithful presence are part of how we proclaim Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about aspiring to live quietly and minding your own affairs and work with your hands, he's saying you don't want to become an overburden to the church. Have you ever wondered why Paul tentmate? He was given financial support. He was offered financial support by the Corinthians, and he didn't accept it. He was offered financial support by the Philippians, and he did accept it. The Thessalonians are so passionate now that they want to give him support, and um, he chose not to accept it because he wanted them to also see that he didn't want to overburden them as a model for them with each other. Paul didn't like manual labor either. I think this is interesting because I do some manual labor in and around the church because I kind of like it, but also because Paul models it. I'm supposed to be a regular human in this church also. But if you read 1 Corinthians 4.12, 1 Corinthians 9.19, and 2 Corinthians 1.7, it's quite clear that Paul's preference was not tent making, making it all the more profound for us that he did that with the Thessalonians, told them it was a model, and encouraged them to continue to do the same thing because that's how the world learns about Jesus. Not through big, fast, now, amazing, but through us continuing to worship in spirit and in truth, for us to continue to do spiritual community, which is Bible studies, which is prayer, which is mundane acts of of, uh, financial and support through meals, and then through faithful presence, whether it's supporting the outreach program where we do food packing, whether it's doing the food pantry, 
whether it's getting involved with one of the many amazing organizations that we're inviting to our retreat center and taking them on a hike or making a meal with them. This is how we proclaim Christ to a watching world. And then we get to the really fun part of 1 Thessalonians, where he starts talking about what happens with respect to Jesus' return to those who have died, because the Thessalonians were nervous about this. And if 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 have ever confused you, you're in good company. That's why 2 Thessalonians exists. As Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and assumed, I think, that he was being clear. This is probably his first letter, though, so maybe, you know, he was getting clearer as he went, but they were confused, which is why 2 Thessalonians exists. Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. That means those who have died. The Thessalonians were concerned that those who died either wouldn't get to be with Jesus forever or wouldn't get to be with Jesus as quickly as those that were still on earth when Jesus came back. This is less of a question for us in the 21st century, but it's still a question that if you tweak it a little bit, we're asking. Um, and I want to ask this because of the way Paul ends chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Some of you have not thought about your eschatology very much. Others of you have. You've read books. You've studied it. The question foremost in Paul's mind does your eschatology lead you to be more unified with the body of Christ or less? It's one of my concerns. It's one of the reasons I land the way that I land with respect to eschatology, both for my study of the text, but also because our view, and eschatology means the end times. So our view of Jesus' return, not when, everybody is clear, we're not going to know, but how and, and how that works, it's supposed to actually unify the body of Christ, even in our disagreements. There are a couple of friends in the church that disagree with uh, me on this, and when I talk about specifically my view of, uh, spe of the book of Revelation, especially chapter 20, they'll come and they'll debate with me, and I'll listen for a little bit, and I'll be like, but we all agree, Jesus wins, right? And then we laugh, because our views are supposed to encourage each other. This is good news that we will always be with the Lord. Paul says, For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That part of the text can confuse us if we think that Paul's giving us a timeline. He's not. He's answering the question that he reported back, that Timothy reported to him from the Thessalonians, do the people who have already died, are they going to miss out when Jesus returns? And Paul's saying no. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. Utilizing 1 Thessalonians, still wanting to teach the text to us that we, the saints, might be equipped with the Lord. The reason is to encourage us with respect to the vision of the church. The mission of the church is to equip us to love God and love neighbor. The vision is that we worship joyfully, that we receive and enjoy and participate in spiritual community, and that we're faithfully present where we find ourselves, through the avenues of the church or otherwise. And Paul expected fully 
that the knowledge that Jesus will return, and by the way, he learned all this from the Old Testament. If you really want to study the Old Testament, you've got to, or if you really want to study the end times, you've got to study the Old Testament. Revelation hadn't been written yet. Anyway, Paul expected end times teaching to encourage us to find even more joy in worship, even more importance in spiritual community, and to then work quietly with our hands when and where we find ourselves vocationally in this world. And of course to be encouraged that we will always be with the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise and thank you for this text that was not written to us, but to those first Thessalonian Christians, but does still encourage us that we get to follow and to worship you that we get to do spiritual family, which we need. And that we get to be faithfully present in our jobs and neighborhoods, that your name might be made much of. Amen.